Well, a few weeks ago, someone, someone from church invited me to play golf um, yesterday. And so I agreed. Some members from church, we went out yesterday and had a good day um, hitting a lot of balls everywhere. And so I needed to prepare to play this round of golf. And um, I borrowed my dad's um, golf club set. And last time I played, it was like six months ago. So I didn't want to go out there and be a hack and just be the weak link among our foursome. So this past week, I believe it was Thursday, I went out to the range to hit some balls to get myself ready for this Saturday. Well, i got to tell you one word. I was a mess. Um, I was had a lot of zeal, a lot of heart, a lot of passion, but very little skill. I don't know what happened to all my skill. It just vanished seemingly overnight, and I was just hitting the ball all over the place. True story. This has actually happened. When the, the range I was hitting at was where you go out into the grass area to hit the balls, and I was so erratic. I was topping the ball. I was hitting it I was to left and right at such extreme angles that the guy next to me picked up his balls and moved over <laughs> a few, few spaces, fearing for his safety. Well, after I was done with my bucket of balls, I was pretty discouraged. I'm like, what am I going to do this Saturday? So I need some help. So I called my dad. It was later on, early evening, and he was home. I said, Dad, I'm out here in the range, and um, I'm just a mess. Can you come on and help me out a little bit? He said, sure. So he came out, and uh, he was giving me tips, giving me lessons, and actually helped out a lot, actually. He knows what he's doing and plays a lot of golf. And it was amazing. You know, as I was sitting there with my dad and he was telling me how to grip, grip the uh, club and how to swing and telling me what I was doing wrong, telling me what I was doing right, you know, instantly, all of a sudden, I was 12 years old again. Right? You know, guys, now I'm 33 years old. Now I'm a husband married for six years. I've got a year, you know, 14-month-old daughter. But as I was out there getting tips from my dad and... When I hit a nice five iron, right, I turned my back and my dad would be like, thumbs up. Good job. <laughs> He'd be like, that was good. That was good. And I was just 12 years old again. And in my heart, I was thanking God for the gift of my father. What a great, precious gift that God has given to me and my dad. And in my heart, at the same time, I see the value of the family. The value of the family. The family is indeed God's gift to us, is it not? Our parents, our siblings, husband, wife, our children, each of them are a reflection of God's goodness, God's love, and God's mercy. That is why I love, I love my family, I love my wife and daughter, but not only that, I love the institution of the family. Just the way God designed it. I am passionate about the family. And that is why I want each believer at Cornerstone to have the same passion for their parents, for their siblings, for their husband, wife, and their children. But you know what, guys? It is so sad that so many are uncommitted to their families. So many are unfaithful, unloving, literally absent. They use the home as a pit stop. 
The home is a place where you eat and sleep, and there is no true God-honoring relationships. It's a house, but it is not a home. You know, there are two kinds of regrets in life. There are, one kind is the fleeting temporal regrets. That's just passing regrets. The other kind are the life-defining regrets. The regrets that you will have at the end of your life. Regrets that are lifelong. And many of them are related to our behavior, our actions, our attitudes within the family structure. Let me read to you the confession of one corporate executive as recorded by Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families. His follow-up to Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Hey, a worthwhile read. Let me just quote to you what he said to Stephen Covey. I really don't know if I'm happy with what I've done in life. I don't know if the price I've paid to get where I am has been worth it. I'm in line now for the presidency of my company, and I'm not sure if I even want it. I'm in my late 50s, and I could easily be the president for several years, but it would consume me. I know what it takes. What I missed most was the childhood of my children. I just wasn't there for them. And even when I was there, I wasn't really there. My mind and my heart were focused on other things. I tried to give quality time because I knew I didn't have quantity, but often it was disorienting and confusing. I even tried to buy my kids off by giving them things and providing exciting experiences But the real bonding never took place, and my kids feel the enormous loss themselves. I have climbed the corporate ladder of success, and as I'm getting near to the top rung, I realize now that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. I just don't have this feeling in our family this beautiful culture that you've been talking about. I feel as if that's where the true riches are. It's not in money. It's not in position. It is in the family, end quote. It is my prayer that no one at Cornerstone will have such lifelong, deep regrets 20, 25 years from now. It is my prayer that maybe 20 years from now when we stand in Nathan's uh, wedding, I don't know, maybe Carol or Annabelle, Anna, Elizabeth's wedding, then no parent would be like, man, where did the time go? Man, I wasn't there. I wasn't present. No father or mother of Cornerstone member would have any regrets. But at that wedding, as we were gathered together as a church, they would have nothing but pride and gratitude and joy to our God because they invested their life in the right things. And to that end, we want to focus on today, from Titus 2, a young mother's responsibility to her family so that at the end of her life she won't have regrets. She won't have such regrets. If you haven't done so, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We're going to spend our time on verse 4. We're going to plan ourselves there for the rest of today's study. But a quick review of our study, a brief context Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Titus, and he is commanding him 
to, to call older women into ministry in the church. He is telling Titus to tell the older women to do the ministry of instructing and training younger women in the church. Because as a male leader, his hands are tied to directly instruct and shepherd younger women for the sake of propriety, for the sake of purity, for the sake of integrity as a man. He cannot get personally involved in the lives of younger women. What he needs to do is entrust that responsibility to older women in the church. They are uniquely enabled to teach and disciple younger women. And so last week, we looked at the first mark of a Titus II woman, right? The first mark of a godly woman is not wisdom, it's not discipline, it's not the number of hours she prays in a day, it's not biblical knowledge, it's not ministering the church. The first mark that Paul outlines for Titus is that the mark of a godly young woman, a woman that you, the, the trait that you ought to, to emphasize in the lives of young women is she's a lover of her husband. And today we find the second trait. And this is directed towards young mothers. Young mothers. Let's read verses 3 and 4. All the women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Older women are to teach what is good, colossus, what is noble, what is right. And therefore, by teaching the Word of God, they are to... Disciple, invest, train younger women to do two things. To love their husbands and to love their children. Look at those three words, brothers and sisters. Love their children. By that simple command, there are just loads of truths here. I want you to consider, first of all, that this command to love your children is a unique responsibility given to mothers. It is a unique command given to moms. Nowhere in the scriptures does God command fathers to love their children. Nowhere. But it is stated here clearly. God commands moms to love their children. And therefore, no one can replace mom's love. It uniquely belongs to the mom. child's mother is irreplaceable. The love that she gives to her child, the care, the affection, the investment cannot be given by anyone else. It's irreplaceable. Stephen Covey says this, and I agree with him. No one can be paid enough to do what a mom will do, what a mom does for free. That is so true. You can get a daycare worker or a babysitter and pay her. A million dollars an hour. And she can't do what a mom will do. A mom does for free. Psalm 127.3 says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Therefore, also consider that this command, this responsibility is directed towards the mother. To love the child is a direct responsibility of the mom. God has given her by the word of God and by the fact that God has given her a gift in her womb, a child, that she is responsible to raise that child. God has given that responsibility to the mom, no one else. No one else. 
John MacArthur says, quote, To neglect one's duty before God as a parent is to forfeit the blessing inherent in the task, and those who do so take on a burden that God never intended. What is that burden? Misery in the family. He says, one sure way to fill your life with misery is to abdicate the responsibility that God has given you as a parent and steward of your child he has graciously placed in your hands, end quote. This stewardship has been entrusted directly to moms. I also want moms to consider that this command to love your children is a permanent responsibility. Permanent responsibility. But a child's need for his or her mom never ends. You are irreplaceable. Whatever job you're working at, you are replaceable. No matter how uh, in management or executive role you have, you can be easily replaced. Your role is not unique, but in the family it is irreplaceable. Your role is unique and your responsibility is permanent. And that is God's will for you. Now, we must ask this question. What mother doesn't love their child? Is this command necessary? I mean, as a husband, I can understand the command to love your husband. As a husband, I can accept the fact, I can handle the truth, that some days I am not as lovable as I ought. And that's difficult for Serene to love me. So I, I appreciate God's command to command my wife to love me. And I appreciate last week's sermon, right, about 1 Corinthians 13, just pounding on, you know, my wife to love me and all the wives as well at Cornerstone to love husbands because we are hard to love. But what mom doesn't love their child? It's, it's unnecessary. Is there a mom who does, who does not love, their, love her child? What mom doesn't love her child? But Paul here clearly says young mothers need to be taught to love their children and need to be trained to love their children. Therefore, it tells us that what God is talking about is not the secular kind of love. All moms have this, this affection, this feeling, this emotional love, attachment to their child. That's a secular love. What God is talking about here in Scripture is a biblical love. Biblical love is not natural. It goes against the grain because of our sinful nature. And we're so, such sinners that a father has to work at loving his daughter, his son. And even a mother has to learn and to be trained to love her child. So let me ask you, what do you think it means? What are some um, practices? What are some marks of biblical love for for your children or for your child? Maybe when you're taking if you're taking notes, maybe brainstorm as many as you can. Biblical love for for a child means this. I'll give you guys a minute. What does it mean? Right. To to Biblically, God, in a God-honoring way, scripturally, love your son or daughter. At least three.
from my study this week, I came up with five. I came up with five practices of biblical love for children, and I firmly believe that biblical love requires the following five practices. If you love your child, if you profess to love your child, yet your love does not include the following five things, I would humbly ask you to question whether you love your child. Humbly ask you to do that. The first mark of biblical love for own children is the priority of loving God. The priority of loving God. Matthew 13, love the Lord your God. That's the greatest commandment with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then love one another. To rightly love our children, we must exemplify. We must be examples of loving Christ. It is almost impossible to overestimate the value and importance of setting this example of loving God first. At home, we talk about having our lives backing up doctrine in the world, having our lives being consistent with Scripture in the church, well, so much more at the home. It is so imperative that parents, that moms, that their lives bring integrity to the doctrine that they hold to, that they profess. J.C. Ryle wrote, quote, Instruction and advice and commands will profit little unless they are backed up by the pattern of your own life. Your children will never believe you are earnest and true if your actions contradict your counsel. To give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning to them with the head towards heaven while you take them by the hand and lead them in the way of hell. End quote. We must, as Christian parents, avoid hypocrisy at all costs at home. And how do we do this? It is by placing the priority of love towards God Above family, above husband, above children. Older moms, younger moms, you need to do this. If not, your child will become your idol. You will have a child-centered home. Lou Priolo says, his definition of a child-centered home is one in which a child believes and is allowed to behave as though the entire household, parents, siblings, and even pets exist for one purpose, to please him, end quote. You will live your life revolved around your child. But your core concern is to please your child. But your concern is not to please God, but to please your son or daughter. The first mark is to love God first. Second mark of biblical love towards children is to love your own husband. Last week's study. Love for husbands come first. It's the priority of husband and wife relationship. This is so Counterculture. This is so contrary to what we believe. And I'm a Korean American, and talking to my parents, they're telling me that in the Korean culture, 
the wife never adopts the husband's name, last name. So in my family, in Korean custom, we're all shins except my mom. She's always viewed as an outsider. With the husband, the children, it's blood, but she's just by marriage and she keeps her last name. And that separation exists. It's a closer bond between the father and the children than with the wife. The Bible says no. The permanent relationship, the lifelong relationship, the priority relationship is the husband and wife and then the child. The relationship between parents and children, the relationship between mom and child is important but secondary. And we learned that last week. Third mark of biblical love is teaching them the Word of God. Teaching them God's Word. If you love your child, you will teach your child the Word of God. One of the greatest things we can do for our children is to teach them God's Word. That's my prayer again. And we, um, and Joan and Dara were married and Joan was testifying about her parents. So encouraging to, to hear her testify that the greatest thing that her parents did for her was to pray for her. That is awesome. I want to hear 20, 25 years from now, our children say the greatest thing our parents did was to pray for her, pray for us, and teach us the Word of God. My mom taught me Scripture. My earliest recollection is her is of her expositing Ezekiel to me, right? <laughs> Exposing Ecclesiastes, the vanity of life. G. Campbell Morgan, a famous preacher, had three brothers who were all pastors. And someone asked him, who is the greatest pastor? Who is the greatest Bible student in your family? You know what he said? He said, my mother. She raised four pastors. Her knowledge of scripture, her exegesis, her theology. I'm you know, paraphrasing here, right? I didn't say all of this, but outshines all of us. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. We want to read together verses 6 and 7. The great command, the Old Testament calling the nation of Israel, the parents, to teach the Word of God to their children. Our family will be memorizing these verses together this week. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. God speaks to the nation of Israel through Moses and He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them. What? Everyone, diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Talking about the totality of life. Teaching of God's Word must not be confined to Sunday mornings, or Wednesday nights, or family worship once a week. In the ebb and flow of life, In every opportunity, you are to pass down the Word of God first to your children, to your family. It's not talking about quality time. It's talking about quantity time. And that is the role of fathers. And that is the role of mothers. The history of Old Testament Israel is an object lesson about the dangers of neglecting Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. 
It is a tragedy. It is so sad to study Old Testament history and realize that Israel was unfaithful to this one command. Turn with me to Judges chapter 2, verses 7 and 10. It's a telling verse about the generation that came after this generation who first entered the promised land. Judges 2. Again, only one generation passed. Deuteronomy 6 was given to this generation. Judges 2 describes this generation's children. And it says in Judges chapter 2 verse 7, And the, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. That's this generation of Deuteronomy 6. Verse 10, And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. That generation died. And they moved on. And there arose another generation after them. And what does it say? Who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. This is almost unbelievable. That whole generation of Israelites failed in their responsibility. They neglected to teach the Word of God to their children. And as a consequence, the next generation turned away from the Lord. Continue to read verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, God of the Canaanites. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, not their forefathers, their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Their children turned to the evil gods, the Canaanites. And the result was idolatry, chaos, and destruction. And that same pattern was repeated again and again and again throughout Israel's history because parents failed to teach the Word of God to their children and that the same thing is happening in our generation. Same thing is happening. As I look upon our families, I wonder how many of us are diligently teaching the Word of God to our children. In the ebb and flow of life, using every opportunity to teach the little ones about God. You know what I think it is? I think it's because we're a young church. And we don't see the, the outworkings of their sinful nature yet in these young children. We think, you know, in the secret place of our heart, I can't see Elizabeth disobeying me. I can't see Elizabeth being rebellious. She's such a sweet child, compliant child, gentle and caring. No way. So, I don't really need to diligently teach her the Word of God. If I just sprinkle on the Word of God and she's at church and she goes to Sunday school and she sits around flock, that's sufficient. Well, it's because we're a young church. We haven't seen, we've forgotten our teenage years. Right, we've, we, we haven't seen, we don't have out of control teenagers in our church, in the church in our midst. So we don't see sinful nature in their, in their full effect. 35,000 parents were questioned on various aspects of parenting. And this was asked to them, 
what happens to the rebellious nature of children as they move through the years? And 35,000 parents, their survey, the answer was this. From birth to two years, 44% of the children were viewed as rebellious, disobedient. Two to four, it shot up to 60%. Four to six, it shot down to 55% of children are viewed as rebellious. Six to 13, rose to 60%. 14 through 20, beyond 75% of parents said, their child is disobedient and rebellious. It tells us, if you start teaching your child at 13, <laughs> too late. Right. A time to train, time to disciple, time to teach must be done when they're young. In many churches, the most popular program, popular classes are how to reach teenagers. How to teach the Word of God to teenagers. You know what? It's too late. I look, up, I look back on my life and when I hit 14, it was over for the next six years. It was six years of just rebellion and just evil and just disobedience because I was out of control and my parents were helpless. You can never begin early enough to teach children the Word of God. The fourth mark of biblical love is to discipline according to the Word of God. Discipline according to the Word of God. Talking about training. Talking about correction. Everyone needs to understand and heed this truth. Young parents, prospective parents, parents with older children... Even grandparents need to know what God says in His Word about the correction of children. In fact, everyone who in any way is related to children must learn to discipline them according to the Word of God. Aunts, uncles, teachers, even babysitters will find it of great value. There are three reasons for the absolute necessity of discipline. Three reasons why discipline must not be an option. If you're a Christian parent, this is an absolute necessity. Number one, nature of the child demands discipline. The nature of the child demands discipline. Genesis 8.21, it says, The Lord said in his heart, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Intention of a man's heart is from when he was young. It's evil. Psalm 58.3 Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward and speak lies. From the womb they are astray. Even in the womb they speak lies. Even a baby in a womb is separate from God. And what has separated them? They're born in sin. They are born sinners. The nature of the child demands correction. Secondly, the direction of the child demands correction. The direction of the child demands correction. Turn with me to Proverbs 23, 13 through 14. It says, Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. It says, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. 
If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, from hell. You will save his soul from hell through discipline. The direction of a child by nature is towards hell. We must understand that. We must realize that. It must influence the fervency with which we pray for our children, with which we care and love and serve our children. How we instruct them and also how we discipline them. Let me quote to you Bishop J.C. Ryle again. He warned parents saying, quote, Remember, children are born with a decided bias toward evil. And therefore, if you let them choose for themselves, they are certain to choose wrong. The mother cannot tell what her tender infant may grow up to be. Tall or short, weak or strong, wise or foolish, he may or may not be any one of these. It is all uncertain. But one thing the mother can say with certainty, he will have a corrupt and sinful heart. It is natural for us to do, the wrong, to do wrong. Solomon said, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. End quote. The direction of the child demands correction. Third reason, the love which we as parents have toward our children demand that we correct them. Why do we correct our children? Why do I discipline Elizabeth? Because I love her. Because Sarin loves her. And no one loves her enough to discipline her. Isn't that true? No one loves my daughter enough to correct her, rebuke her, and train her. We read this morning Hebrews 12, 5-11. And it teaches us, God, when God disciplines us, believers, He's treating us as sons because He loves us. If you're not being disciplined by God, he, the writer of Hebrews says this, God is treating you as an illegitimate child. He's not treating you as a son or a daughter. But if you are being disciplined, it is a revelation of His love. Likewise for the child. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. If you love your child, you will remember that discipline is not, not hate. Discipline is love. We discipline them because we love them. We want them to be good children because we love them. We want them to obey God because we love them. We want them to be saved, to come to a saving knowledge of God. That is why we apply the ride. Let me quote to you J.C. Ryle again got many things on parenting and it's so profitable. He writes, Fathers and mothers, I tell you plainly, if you never punish your children when they are in fault, you are doing them a grievous wrong. I warn you, this is the rock on which the saints of God in every age have only too frequently made shipwreck. I would fain persuade you to be wise in time and to keep clear of it. Consider Eli, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They made themselves vile and Eli did not restrain them. 
He gave them no more than a tame and lukewarm reproof when he ought to have rebuked them sharply. In one word, he honored his sons above God. And what was the end of these things? He lived to hear of the death of both of his sons in battle. And his own gray hairs were brought down with sorrow to the grave. See also David, the pain that his children brought him, their sins. Consider Abnon's incest, Absalom's murder and proud rebellion, Adonijah's scheming ambition. These were the grievous wounds for the man after God's own heart that he received from his own household. But what was David's fault? And J.C. Rao says, I find the clue in 1 Kings 1.6. It says in 1 Kings 1.6 about David that David never interfered with Adonijah by asking him, why do you behave as you do? End quote. David never corrected Adonijah, never rebuked him, never trained nor disciplined him. And the result of his son rebelling against God and rebelling against David and this was the foundation of all the mischief. David was an overindulgent father, a father who let his children have their own way, and he reaped what he sowed. NIV says, translates Proverbs 19.18 well. It says, discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Do not be a willing party to his death. Well, we found, we've, thus far, we've seen four marks of biblical love. I don't know how many of you guys had in your own list. Love for God, the priority. Love for your husbands. Teaching them the word of God. The fourth one is diligently disciplining them. And here's the fifth one, the final one. Fifth mark of biblical love towards children for a mother to be diligent at home. To, be, to have a full-time presence with one's child. This is the foundational requirement necessary for the first four. Does that make sense? How can you establish a God-centered family if you're not home? How can you love your husband if you're not home? How can you be the, the primary teacher of God's word to your child if you're not the primary caregiver of your child? How can you discipline your child, correct him or her, if you're not caring for your child full time? If you don't do the fifth one, the first four are a foregone conclusion. Foregone conclusion. I would say it makes the job of loving your child, loving your husband, caring for your, uh, um, caring for your child, uh, and, and teaching them, makes it, near, makes it very difficult, if not near impossible. Very difficult. And I would say it makes discipline near impossible. Let me share with you guys the experience that we had as parents you know, in the beginning, I had such a hard time disciplining Elizabeth, correcting her, rebuking her, even saying no to her, or even just training her. Because I'll be gone all day. 
I would leave and she's still sleeping. I would come home late at night and Elizabeth goes to bed around 8, 9 o'clock. So I would have two or three hours with her. And so I, in the beginning, I told Serene, man, I don't want Elizabeth to equate daddy with discipline, right? I feel guilty not seeing my daughter. So I just want to play with her and love her and lavish her because I don't want to her to equate that. So out of guilt, I was moved by guilt to lavish her things that weren't biblical. It was through study of God's Word in the past few months where study, especially learning about how God the Father disciplines us. I need to be the one actively with my wife disciplining our child. But it's so difficult. Well, how much more for her mom if she's not home with her child? There is no substitute for the special relationship between a parent, between a mother and a child, irreplaceable. Go down to the next verse in verse 5. It says that they are to be working at home. That's what young moms are called to, to be diligent at home. Now, I know this is not popular. I know that this is not what our society, our culture presents as the ideal. And I know that most moms aren't interested in working at home. There is a movement. I don't know if you read the, read the news this week. There's a movement. Like 13.4% of moms are staying home now. Right? It's a resurgence of stay-at-home moms. It seems to be turning a corner. Or the generation that grew up in daycare don't want to raise their children in daycare. They want to be home. But still, it is not a popular idea. That word is clear in the Greek. It's one word, oikoorgos, meaning working, diligent home. And yes, the Proverbs 31 woman traded, uh, traded garments on the marketplace. Yes, she bought and sold land. But all that she did outside the home was an extension of her home. Yes, she made money, but it was an extension of her ministry and her priority with her household. For the Proverbs 31 woman, she poured her life for the sake of the home. She got up early, stayed her late for the household. And that is what Paul is saying. That young mothers are to be homekeepers. That's the sphere of her responsibility. That's her place of employment. That is where she should pour her life out. For a mother to get a job outside the home and send a child or children to some kind of daycare place or relatives is to shirk her God-given responsibility. It is a failure on the husband's part that he is to be the provider, Ephesians 5. He is to lead, he is to protect, he is to provide. And the wife, she is allowed to fulfill her God-given role in the family. Now when the children are grown and they leave the household, You have more freedom, but even then, a wife's priority, a mother's priority is to be at home. The home is where she leads and guides, where she teaches and raises the godly generation. The home is where she is protected and secured. The home is where she lodges strangers, washes saints' feet, feet, shows hospitality, and devotes herself to every good work. That's her sphere. Proverbs 7.11 gives this definition of a prostitute. She is boisterous and rebellious, and her feet do not remain at home. 
Proverbs 31 woman is a contrast to this woman where her sphere is at home. I would humbly exhort the husbands. Seek the Lord and to grant your wife the opportunity to fulfill her God-given role as a mother and as a wife. You know, most families say, oh, it's because of finances. We need two incomes to survive. In April 1997, U.S. News and World Report published an article entitled, Lies Parents Tell Themselves About Why They Work. It was an article titled, Lies Parents Tell Themselves About Why They Work. The authors Shannon Brownlee and Matthew Miller claim that few topics are as important and involve as much self-deception and dishonesty than this topic. And the first one, first lie is, we need the extra money. We need it for necessities. Research, they said, shows that for a great majority, the reason is not for needs. The reason is for luxuries. It's for that big house, for that nice car, that European vacation. It's not for the necessities of life. Let me quote MacArthur to you again. Before the throne of God, we will be held accountable if we have turned our children over to other influences that shape their character in ungodly ways. God has placed in our hands the responsibility of bringing our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and we will give account to God for our stewardship of this great gift. If others have more influence on our children, then we are culpable. We have no excuse on those grounds, end quote. I promise, last story. Got to share this. You know, Bob's not here celebrating their, um, as a family, they're, they're away. And he shared with me this story. And I might get in trouble for this or not, but he's not here. So I have a week to live, so it's okay. But, you know, everybody, people see Bob as this tough guy, intimidating guy, strong guy. Well, he is all of that. But there is a side to Bob that, man, he's probably the softest guy, one of the softest guys I know. He's such a soft, gentle spirit. I mean, he's got the, the warmest heart. And he was telling me that on his 13th birthday, his mom asked him what he wanted for his birthday. And it was, you know, his uh, birthday's in July and it was during vacation. And he didn't ask for a football, right? He didn't ask for golf clubs or or basketball shoes, or video game. You know what he asked for to his mom? He said, would you stay home with me for one day? He knew she couldn't stay home. She wouldn't. But I said, my birthday, that's all I want, for you to stay home with me. I asked Bob, well, what happened? It would be a bad story if she didn't. But Bob, I said, yeah, she stayed home. What would you guys do? We spent the whole day together. It was so great. That just shows me, even for a guy, what a tough guy. What does he want? What does he need? The care of his mom. What do our children want or need from us? They don't want expensive clothes. They don't need nice toys. They don't want a fancy car. They don't need a big house. They need their parents. 
But fall back. They need their moms. They need their moms. As a father, I can, I can accept that. I can admit that. I personally and humbly plead with you as your pastor and shepherd. Young moms, younger women, don't be enamored by the things of this world. Who cares about a nice house? It's going to burn. Who cares about a new car, nice clothes, living comfortably, making money? God has given you or will give you a priceless gift in your child. He has entrusted to you the care of a soul. You are the first person in that child's life and you are the last person in that child's life. You are the most, one most responsible for the physical and spiritual needs of your son or daughter. Are you going to neglect that? Are you going to relinquish that? Are you going to entrust that child, that gift to someone else? That is not right. To all the mothers here, to all the married women who, if God wills, will be mothers, I humbly exhort to you to prioritize your family, make decisions now so that you will be able to prioritize your family financially, in terms of education, in terms of career, in terms of future goals. Prepare yourself so that you'll be able to do this when God entrusts you with this precious gift that you will love your children by loving God first, then loving your husband teaching them diligently the Word of God, disciplining them according to God's Word, and being a full-time mom. Being a full-time mom. Let's pray. Oh God, I definitely sense the burden of, of the responsibility of teaching your word accurately, cutting straight the word of God, lest I lead your people astray. Lord, I fear in my heart that I would preach too strongly or at the same time that I would preach too weakly. Lord, that I would have preached the Word of God accurately and with the emphasis that you intended, we entrust the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will take the Word of God and, and do a work in our hearts that's according to your will. That the Word of God is everything, that your servant of God is nothing. Lord, we pray that you will raise God-honoring, God-centered, God-pleasing families in our midst that our precious mothers would be faithful unto you as they care over these precious gifts. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time,